The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Hey, we're uh, Redemption Bible Church, and so the Bible is our middle name, so turn in your copy of God's Word to... Genesis 44. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you forgot it, or you're visiting with us and uh, you don't have a copy, Greg has some here. Just stick up your hand. He'll get you a copy. Um, You can keep it if you don't have one, or uh, if uh, you just forgot it, you can leave it there on the pew and we'll pick it up at the end. If you don't have sermon notes or whatever, just uh, raise your hand. He's got some of those as well if you want to help, have some help following along in that regard. But Genesis 44. God's been teaching us a lot through this section of scripture, hasn't he? Jerry mentioned it at the beginning, um, and I expect that today it will be no different. As your pastor, it's been a great joy to watch God's word have an effect on your hearts. It gives my preparation, my prayers, my study during the week, my preaching even now as I disciple and shepherd uh, you. It gives it great joy as I see God's word working in your life, having a daily impact that this isn't just a Sunday thing, is it? This is a daily, daily thing. And so if you're just joining us today, welcome. I trust that God's word will have an impact on your heart. I'd love to say hey to you after. If, uh, uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, just learn how you heard about redemption, all that. But glad that you are here with us. This week, um, as I was talking with some friends, we had some people over one night, and then it also came up uh, the next night in small group. This house that sits kind of downtown on Seguin, right across from the convention center. It's an old, white, dilapidated house that has been for sale for a long time. Anybody know which house I'm talking about? As you drive down there, uh, so you, now you'll notice it as you get, if you're going heading down towards the square. The convention center is kind of on your uh, on, on your left there, and there's it's on the corner. Apparently, it's been for sale for over a decade. It's just been sitting there. It's in a beautiful house. has kind of a wraparound porch on a couple sides there, multiple stories. But the house has been designated as a historical site. And so anybody that comes and does any renovation work on it has to restore it to its historical roots. Now, you can't just come in and do, go all Chip and Joanna Gaines on it and modernize it. You got to return it to its, uh, uh, its original roots. And so it's been sitting on the market for a long time. And every year, apparently, that the price just keeps going up, but nobody is going to buy it. It's beautiful. It's historical. Some would say maybe it's beyond repair that to even just purchase it and to do the necessary repairs would be over a million dollars. And so if whether you're going to start a business or whatever you're going to do there, it is likely beyond repair. And this reminded me of our text here today, Genesis 44, in this series that we continue on God meant it for good and seeing God's hand in every life circumstance. And really in this mini theme uh, series that we've been in the last few chapters on this theme of reconciliation. Jacob's family is in disarray. There are broken relationships, heavy guilt that has been weighing on them for 20 or so years. There's more drama in this family than an afternoon soap opera. And yet this is the chosen family. God's people who were given a promise by God himself to Abraham and passed down through the generations of a land of multiplied offspring and a blessing that they would be to the nations Uh, as they interact with one another. 
But will the sin that this family has been broken up by, will that sin nullify that promise? Is this family just too far gone? Are these relationships beyond repair, the sin too deep to be restored? Beloved, may it never be. <laughs> may it never be. What we, have we learned thus far? That God is in the business of reconciliation, isn't he? That he is the initiator of this reconciliation. That he is the orchestrator of all the people of the circumstances to make reconciliation possible. And so today we ask the question, well, why? What's at the heart of this reconciliation? What drives it? What fuels it? Well, let me give you the answer. It's kind of our main theme here that you can write in your Bibles at the top of the header. Remember, as we've been going through this series, we've kind of seen these big pictures that uh, I think will help wrap up and will tie together this theme of God meant it for good. And so it's in your notes, but I want you to write it in your Bibles too if you've been following along in this series. And it is simply this, compassion drives reconciliation. Compassion drives reconciliation. This is what is at the Heart. And so I want to read our chapter for you. You can follow along in your copy, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper into it. Genesis 44 says this. Then he commanded the steward of his house, this is Joseph here, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. 
My Lord asked the servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then he said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our Lord, our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of God. What a chapter, huh? What a chapter. See, this is picking up, if you're just uh, joining us here, this is picking up after 20 years of betrayal and guilt among the brothers. These brothers had uh, uh, taken Joseph and thrown him into a pit and then sold him into slavery. And now through a series of ups and downs and God uh, working through this family, now Joseph is uh, as the prime minister. He's basically the second in charge over Egypt. And the whole world at this point, the whole known earth is in a famine. And so everybody is coming to Egypt where God, through Joseph, led him to uh, save the grain during seven years of plenty. And so now as this famine is overtaking the earth, they're coming to Egypt to get the grain. And so Joseph's brothers have come once. Now they're in this whole pickle. Joseph has been testing them to see where their hearts lie, if there has been any sort of change in them over the last 20 years. And now... We're at this scene, this final test, this test of reconciliation, this test and this desire to see this family restored that had once been broken. And so along the way, there's been these tests. We've seen that God is in this business, that there's this reconciliation. And so now we're seeing that this compassion, compassion drives the car of reconciliation. And so what are we to do? Well, our first 15 verses teach us that we are to keep going. We are to keep going because transformation is possible. So you're taking notes. That's our first point. We keep going. Keep going towards transformation. Chapter 43 ends with Joseph and his brothers eating while Joseph's heart is warmed with compassion, we're told. That's how the last chapter ends. And this one begins now with one more test. 
It's one more test. Seeing his brothers after 20 years, Benjamin has been testing them along the way. And here's what he is trying to discern. He's trying to discern, will they abandon Benjamin like they did him 20 years earlier? See, now, uh, Jacob, their father, had multiple wives. And there's 12 sons in that lineage. But his favorite wife was Rachel. And she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob then showed favoritism to those two sons because they were, they were the offspring of his favorite wife. And that led to the betrayal way back several chapters ago. That led to this whole mess and this whole predicament that they're in. They hated Joseph. They were jealous of him in an extreme way. They wanted to kill him. And so that's where all this evil began. And so now 20 years later, as God has sovereignly brought these brothers back together, they don't know that it's their brother Joseph who is the one in charge here. They don't know yet, that's coming. They don't know yet, Benjamin, or Joseph now is testing to see, does this same sort of favoritism still exist in their lives? And verse four here of our chapter really gives the, the insight into his heart and the motive of the test where he asks, why have you repaid evil when all I've done is treated you well? And there's really a foreshadowing here of this main theme that is of Genesis that we find in chapter 50, that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. That's right. So Joseph is testing here. Has a change taken place? Have they been transformed? Are these just the same old guys that they once were 20 years and so they concoct this plan here, Joseph and his steward or his assistant, and things go as they planned. They concoct this plan, and in verse 6, the steward overtakes them as they are journeying back now with the grain. They've been sent back with their sacks of grain, headed back to Canaan, to uh, what we know as Israel today. They're headed back, and the steward overtakes them, confronts them. And what do they offer as the terms? He says, you've taken these things. And they say, no, 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 we haven't done anything. They are declaring their innocence so much so that they say, whoever has this cup, this silver cup is, you know, would have been a, a magic, not a magic cup. I mean, they deceive him to say this is like a magic cup that he practiced divination. It's just a special royal cup and it's hidden in his sacks of grain like we just read. And so they're like, no, no, none of us have done this. If it's found, then we will, that person will die and the rest of us will be servants. Well, the steward then, verse 10, he, he tones it down just a little bit, shows them some mercy. He says, no, just the one who's found with it will be enslaved. There's a flashback here, isn't it? Flashback to chapter 37 when the brothers are plotting against Joseph. Initially, they said, we should kill him. We should just throw him in a pit and let him die. And they come to their senses and they say, no, we'll just sell him into slavery. So there's some flashback there. The test is happening. And who is found with the cup? We know it's Benjamin, right? He's found guilty with the cup. And at this moment, all of their worst fears are realized. This is the exact thing that Jacob did not want to happen. Their father, why he was reluctant to send them. He said, if this son, the son who I love, this favorite son of mine, if something happens to him, that means both of my favorite sons would be done for and I, life would just be too much to bear, that I would die. And now all of these worst fears are being realized before them, so much so that they tear their clothes an expression of great grief and anguish. And they, you know, verse 
13 is really kind of the understatement of the chapter. They tear their clothes and then they all load their donkey and they return back to the city. I don't know how far they got, but you can imagine that journey back to the city, like what in the world is happening now? You ever got in trouble before? Maybe the boss found you out at work or something. Kids, maybe your parents found you out and that kind of like marched down to back to the boss's office. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> Going to talk to the parents about what just happened. Not so great. But here in the midst of this, Joseph is testing them. And sometimes maybe we can get confused by the motives of Joseph's tests, right? We think, is Joseph just getting some revenge here? You ever thought that? Like, what is, what's the purpose behind all this? Joseph, he's, is he just toying with them, putting their money in their sacks, sending them back? They're all confused. They come back. He does it again, puts the cup back in. Like, what, what's behind all this? Is he just messing with them? You know, is this just like the, one of, he's one of the younger brothers. Is just this like the kid sibling that's messing with the older siblings to see if they'll get in trouble? What, what's going on behind here? But over and over, we are led into Joseph's motive. It's compassion. He actually, I think, deeply cares about his brothers. As we see him, chapter after chapter, being warmed to the heart at seeing them. Despite the hurt, despite the betrayal, despite their desire to kill him, he has a heart of compassion And these tests and trials are really to see what is going on in their life. They are no different. The tests and trials of our life are really to root out what is the motivation of our heart. God in his kindness, putting these circumstances in our life, using them as tools for transformation. And his, I would say, Joseph's intentions here, as are God's intentions, are good, driven by compassion for us. Intentions are everything, right? Intentions are, that is what lies at the heart. They're the most difficult to discern, but they are the most important thing. Why are we doing this? Why are we feeling this way? Here's here's an example of of our intentions. I used to... um, Several years ago now, for about five or six years, I used to teach hunter education. Mostly kids, sometimes adults and all that. And one of the first questions that I would ask everyone, I would have a, 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 the firearm in my hand. I'd ask kids, what, what is this? Some would say, it's a weapon. I'd say, wrong answer. I hope not. If it is a weapon in your hands, then you're out of the, you're out, you're out of the class. But it's, a, it is a, it's an apparatus uh, that's made of metal and wood and it projects other uh, uh, you know, projectiles made of metal and whatnot out of it. But it's just really here. And our intentions and how we use it can be for good. They could be used for recreation, for protection, for um, conservation, for pleasure and things. Or if their intentions are bad, you can use it for destruction. Then it becomes a weapon of destruction. It's the motive that's behind it. And anything can really become. This can be, this big beast of a pulpit here, is, uh, its intention is to be used for uh, preaching, to hold God's word. It's a tool. But very quickly, I could pick this up. Well, I have to work out a little bit because it's pretty beastly. But I could take this up and I could use it as a weapon of destruction. And I could like toss it down here on Kate and Corey and they would be done for. Just picture that in your mind. The preacher is threatening to go all WWE on everybody. No, I'm not. 
It's, a, it's just an illustration to point out intentions. Anything can become that. Our words can become that. A pencil can become It's an intention. It's the heart behind what we are after. And I'm not necessarily trying to get into a, a discussion on gun control and all those things. It's just simply to bring us to the heart of the matter. It boils down to intentions, matters of the heart, and transformation is about the heart. That's what we're after as a church. Transformation is possible in anyone, in everyone, and in every single situation. We keep going, never giving up, with hearts full of compassion. That's what Joseph is doing here. And God, I think, has done a work in Joseph's heart before he's doing this work, and maybe simultaneously as he's doing this work in these brothers' life. Because here's the the reality, beloved. God uh, oftentimes does a work in our own own hearts before he does a work in the other person's heart. And so as you think about a situation or a person that you are trying to reconcile with, or maybe it's a a relationship that is broken, as you think maybe about your own marriage or this co-worker or your own siblings, and maybe it is a, a long time since you've spoken to them, and you're like, it is just too far gone. But God is bringing it up in this series through this word, and you're like, I just don't know. I don't know, or you're at odds with a, with, a, with, a, with a child or a sibling or something. Well, beloved, what God is doing in your heart is just as important as the things you are praying that he would do in their hearts. And God is so gracious and so kind to bring up these situations, to, to, to call these things to mind that he might make you more like Christ. And that's the beautiful work. He wants to do it in your heart first. And then, and then, as he does his work in your heart, then he may be doing that work in their heart. See, this is why we really believe our, our pillars of, uh, of unceasing prayer and unafraid witness. These two things, as we share the good news of Jesus, as we persistently pray, sometimes these situations that we find ourselves in like this are, are what, what teach us to really rely upon these things and to really be bold as we share the gospel. See, it is never too late. There's no one that is too far gone, no situation that is too beyond repair. We keep praying. We keep sharing Christ. We keep living a godly life. Among our wayward kids, we don't give up. It may be 20 years before that transformation comes about. It might be through a difficult, strained relationship with your parents. Don't grow cold to them. Pray for humility in your heart, for compassion towards them. That impossible situation for those people that are in your life that are just continually making heartbreaking decisions. Wait upon the Lord. Trust his timing. God is working out his purposes in each situation. We know Judah's past. Judah's kind of brought to the forefront in this chapter, isn't he? Read chapter 38 if you've forgotten it. He's got a pretty big laundry list of sin. God is doing this transforming work in his life too. He does it in our life. He does it in others' lives. He does it on a grand scale in our nation And as we think about all the issues and the the hot topic things that news uh, stations and newspapers love to highlight and get all, you know, the talking heads bring about those things, we, we know on a daily basis that we live in a deeply divided, broken nation, don't we? We, we know that. Every week, every day is another reminder of those things. What's the hot topic thing right now? 
immigration and what's happening on the border. And it's easy to just uh, to, to stand back and hide out on our one side and lob those bombs vilifying the other side. That's the easy work, but the hard work, the reconciling work, the gospel work, harder work, the way forward is to come towards one another in humility, seeking understanding and reconciliation. Our hope ultimately, beloved, is not in the government. It's not in them to fix the situation ultimately, though we should call upon them to to do better. But our hope is in who? Our trust is in who, beloved? It's in the Lord. It's in the gospel. It's in the gospel that we know that says that we, that God has reconciled, he's made possible reconciliation vertically. That sinful humanity, a broken relationship, can be restored to him. And when that is understood, and we as those who love it are filled with compassion to make broken things horizontally right. And it's found in the gospel, gospel humility and gospel compassion and gospel joy. And so I don't claim to have the answer for all that's happening there, but I would just simply point us back to the hope that we have in the gospel and that transformation is possible in the Lord. He does it first in our hearts, then in those others, also in bigger situations. He does it in the church as well. This is what we're after as a body of believers, isn't it? This transformation, this is what we want to see. We want to see the lost saved, the saved mature, the mature multiplied, all to the glory of God. That's the trajectory that we're on. If you find yourself in that, if you're lost, if you're apart from Christ today, that's the hope that God would transform your heart, making you like Christ. You're a new believer, God is transforming you. Young believer, God is transforming and maturing you through the means of worship and small group and church together and life together of learning and growing and reading God's word and praying and serving. All those things, God is maturing us. But it doesn't just stop there. We continue to multiply Next phase and transformation, multiplying time after time that we, that we are pouring ourselves out into other believers. We want to disciple one another. We want to see that happen in our kids and others and people that we know. We keep going. We keep going, driven by compassion, seeing transformation happen, transformation being change or growth in the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. Let's go back to our text Compassion, it drives the car of reconciliation to the city of transformation on the fuel of substitution. And so we pick it back up in verse 16. And what do we need to do? We need to look up. We need to look up because there's been a substitute. We don't just keep going. We don't give up. In the midst of reconciliation, in the midst of God bringing relationships back to restoration, but we look up. And the remainder of our chapter here is really a monologue by Judah where he does three things. There's a lot of stuff here that uh, is a repetition of the situation. But in verse 16, he first does this. He admits their guilt. Judah has now risen to the, the, the forefront. He is now the spokesperson for these brothers He is the fourth in line, but of these now 11 brothers, he has become the leader, the spokesperson. And he collectively, in verse 16, he admits their guilt by saying, 
we, we've done this. God has found out the guilt of your servants. And there's something that's happening even here beyond just the initial situation. What, what is happening here is they have been carrying this guilt for almost two decades now, 20 years, and God is bringing it back to the surface. And he is admitting this. And Joseph responds in verse 17 by saying, no, he, he gives a just answer. He says, no, only the guilty should be punished. The rest of you can go in peace. Return home to your father. I will only punish this one who is guilty, namely Benjamin. And second, what Judah then does in verse 18 is he shows concern for his father. And so we don't need to read it and go back through it all, but, but really Judah, as he's pleading with Joseph, Joseph who has shown himself to be just, Joseph who is, going to, who is the one in charge here, he is pleading with him based out of concern for his father. And beloved, right there shows that transformation has happened. Because in chapter 37, when they were plotting against Joseph, did they have any sort of concern for how their dad would respond to his favorite son being cast away from him? No. They were cold-hearted. They were indifferent to their dad. So much so that they make up this wild story and they tear up his his favorite multicolored jacket and put blood on it and, and take it to their dad and create this whole plot, this whole false story about how he died that... Jacob now for 20 years has operated under the assumption that his son was attacked by wild beasts and has been killed. But now, Judah, this is new. Change has happened. They are concerned for their father's response. The heartache that this would cause him. And third, and really verse 30 and to the end, as Judah then offers himself as a substitute for the one whom his father loves. He first admits their guilt. He then shows concern for his father. And now he is offering himself as a substitute for the one his father loves, namely Benjamin. And he says here in verse 32 that I, will be, or that I have become a pledge of safety. That I will stand as that whatever happens to him, I, my life is on the line. This idea, this word of pledge is, is actually ironically here linked to the same word as used back in chapter 38 when Tamar takes a pledge from Judah, uh, the staff and the ring and, and uh, the cord around his neck and all that. Those were physical uh, pledges that would stand in his place. And so Moses, as he's writing this, is linking us here. He's pointing us back to that situation, saying, yeah, there's been transformation that has happened. Now Judah has offered his own life. And what is, what is really interesting is that about a thousand years later, a prophet named Jeremiah in chapter 30 would use this same term of the Savior or the Messiah who would come and be a pledge of safety for his people. What is that pointing us to? Where should our minds go? Who was a substitute Christ. Don't miss this. See, the reason that no one is too far gone or no situation is too far beyond repair is that because Jesus went the greatest distance to reconcile us to himself. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He bore the punishment that we deserved and took the guilt that was ours by appeasing the wrath of God and his hatred of sin. Theologians call this the doctrine of the atonement. But simply said, it's this, four words. Christ in my place. Christ in my place. And this is beautifully painted here for us. 
This is beautifully painted here for us in this story, this timeless truth where in, in really in every instance of reconciliation on an individual level, on a church level, on a, on a national level, on a big, small scale and big scale, every instance of reconciliation, this idea is painted. Our eyes are lifted to Christ. This isn't just a nice story about Joseph or Judah or even Jacob. Because we, beloved, we must look up and see something bigger, better, and more beautiful. The gospel masterpiece of Christ taking our place on the cross. There's gospel implications here. Our life, our situations aren't just about us. But God is increasing our understanding of and our affections for the gospel in our own hearts. And he's displaying that as that happens in our life, as we are transformed, as we are living in light of what Christ has done as our substitute, Christ standing in our place. That gospel masterpiece is then painted for the world to see, for your kids to see, for your coworkers to see, for your family, the world around you to see. And he's hanging it out there. If only we would look up and behold it. Look up, beloved. Look up and see what Christ has done And when we behold the beauty of what Christ did, how could we not grow in compassion towards one another, particularly towards those who have hurt us? When we truly understand the gospel and what God has done for us, that we were his enemies, that we hated him, that we've betrayed him time and time again, and God, out of great compassion for us, paid the ultimate price, stood in our place that we might be reconciled. When we understand that, Every other offense is minimized. We look up and we behold it and we see this opportunity. How could our hearts not well up in compassion? How could it not drive the bus? But sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes our hearts are cold, aren't they? We talk a lot about compassion, but how, like, where is it? How do, why is my heart cold? As I was thinking about this, I think there's a lot of answers. But maybe here this will help put it into a little perspective as you're assessing your own heart in these situations. Maybe the situation that you find yourself in that's difficult, your marriage or kids or personal situation. Created this little chart here to assess your life on called the vertical compassion meter. Here it is before you. We want a compassionate heart, a vertical heart. And sometimes on this scale, we kind of get off center. And this is the beautiful thing about every week we come to church, we, we get in God's word together, and it should be able to, it's really designed to reorient us back to vertical. Because the other six days of the week, think we get pulled in every other direction, don't we? Things come up, good things, and some not so great things, and they distract us. And so we come here, and God in his kindness, he reorients us back to vertical. But sometimes we find ourselves Fallen over here, we're cold-hearted. We're cold-hearted. We're, t- we're cold-hearted towards that person. We just simply don't care. It's not worth it to us to fix the situation. I just simply ask, if you find yourself on that side, do you truly understand your reconciliation with God? Spend some time this week in Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Get the this great book called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert and ask God, pray, spend time on your knees asking God to grow your compassion that your heart would not be cold and indifferent but would move back to vertical, to the compassionate heart. Sometimes maybe we find ourselves on the other side towards a controlling heart, 
towards a controlling heart. We're trying to force the situation. Yes, it's not that we've grown indifferent. It's just that we're trying to coerce it. We're trying to manipulate it. We, we want to change the situation now. And we're going to do whatever we can. All the time missing what God is doing in our hearts. All the time missing the sovereignty of God, the timing of God, the kindness of God that has to do the work in our heart. Let God do his work. Let God do his work in our heart and in the situation, knowing, trusting that it might take some time. But never should that diminish our compassion for the person or the situation. We're trusting the Lord. This is what we see happening. Compassion driving this reconciliation happening in this family. And so as we close, I just want to bring us back here. Let's bring us back around. Judah is a picture of whom? Of Christ, of God's greater son. He pledged his life for those whom his father loved. The one that is standing as a representative and speaking for all the brothers who offered himself as a substitute for the sin of his brother. And this is what we remember every time we take communion. This is every time we come to the Lord's table. It is this ongoing picture of this simple truth. Simple, but profound, isn't it? Simple, but God working in our life, this heart of reconciliation And so what we're going to do here as we close is just a way to respond. God is doing his work, hopefully in in your own heart, is we're going to take some time to pray together in preparing our hearts.